0: Welcome back to the Film 89 Podcast. This is episode 103. I'm Sky and making his return to Film 89 is seasoned podcaster, cinephile and expert on film scores and composers. It's our good friend Stephen Simpson. Stephen, welcome back, sir.
1: Thank you very much, Sky. It's appreciated.
0: Now, you were last with us in October for our 2022 Halloween special, if memory serves.
1: Yeah, it was actually, yeah, I enjoyed that. Crikey, that guy was that long
0: ago. Mm. I think it's
1: nearly coming up to October again.
0: Yeah, (laughs) I know. And tonight, Steve and I will be discussing for its 60th anniversary, one of, well, both of our all-time favourite films, I think. It's a perennial Sunday afternoon TV classic, and moreover, it's simply one of the greatest war films ever made, with a cast to die for. It is, of course, The Great Escape. So, Steve, when did you first see The Great Escape?
1: Well, funny to say that I was actually trying to Google the TV broadcast over the years and I couldn't actually find much on it. I think it said 1988, but I'm sure I saw it before then. Maybe it was. I'll tell you why I saw it before the broadcast, because I had two videos. The first VHS copy I got, the front of the box had um, like a burnt piece of paper outside of it with a part of the cast in the middle section from the old poster. And that I lived with for quite a while. Um, I probably did see it on TV Although that would have been slightly edited because I think the gunning down of Ives on the uh, barbed wire was was trimmed slightly, I say, as far as I'm been told. But it didn't come into it didn't come into its own until I picked up the widescreen VHS copy. Oh Man, that looks so good! Actually seeing the whole screen there, no pan and scan or any of that rubbish.
0: I don't know if '88 would have been the first TV broadcast because I would I've been in '88, I would have been Tangling on Eleven. I'm I'm sure I saw it way before that.
1: I, think I was trying to look for the release dates of the um, VHS copies as well. I think maybe it was 88, maybe 88, 89 that the widescreen copy came out. Because I know exactly where I bought it. Because I was in Maidenhead at a Blockbuster, walked in the shop on the right hand side. They had all the widescreen VHS copies, I always picked up Star Wars when they came out and stuff like that. And that was another one on my list to have. And obviously since then, I've got the Blu-ray and the 4K copies as well now. So I've certainly been around the houses with it.
0: Yeah, I I owned it on widescreen VHS, and uh oh, that would have been early two thousands. The um, it was a US DVD. Well, it's it's the copy I've actually watched in prep for this. Uh, I'm sorry, Steve, I haven't watched it in uh, in HD. I've watched it in uh, old fashioned uh, DVD 480.
1: Ah, not bad though, still.
0: <laughs> it, it was a a double disc set, quite a few extras, but bear in mind this DVD, it's still is serviceable. It, it is. Mm. I, I I wish. I wish I'd picked it up on Blu-ray, but it's just one of those things that occasionally is available on Netflix and other streaming platforms, so I just haven't felt the need to to, to buy buy it again.
1: No, it, it was only seven ninety I think I got it about seven ninety nine on Blu-ray and it come with Battle of Britain and
0: Might Be a Bridge Too
1: Far. They all comes as a bundle.
0: Now you've spoken about the Great Escape on an episode of Wrong Real Avenue. You've done them. Um, the Men on the Mission series with James Hancock.
1: That's right. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and was that part of this, or was it this part of your? Was it a John Sturgis episode?
1: No, it was John Sturgis, because it was The Magnificent Seven, Great Escape, and
0: Oh, the Eagle has landed. And that was it, that was the third one. Yeah, that that was a John Sturgis episode you did with James Hancock. So obviously, that you know you've you've spoke about you know the Great Escape before, but what does this film mean to you? It's been a
1: comfort movie in one way from a, from watching it very young, but. It's one, It's something that just puts a smile on my face. As soon as I see the red, see the um, intro with the red writing when you've got telling you about how the the 50 was shot and you've got the music coming in and you see the trucks pulling in, going through the countryside, leading up to the um, to the camp. No, it's a movie I can watch and watch and watch. And I think even my missus said to me, Steve, are you watching this again? <laughs> I can never get enough of this movie. And there's always something to look at in there that you don't maybe notice. Or even in research for this, there's a couple of bits that I didn't know from last time. And it's, again, there's a few movies, and I know yourself, where we have these big array of stars, even the Hollywood stars at the time being in the 70s, 60s, whatever. And you don't
0: get movies like that anymore. No, the, the cast is absolutely to die for. You know, it's, it's up there with films like, you know, The Tyrant Inferno,
1: absolutely yeah and in Magnuson 7 as well before this which if it wasn't for that Sturgis wouldn't have made the Great Escape that was his final tilt to do it
0: we discussed you know the amazing cast two episodes back in Oppenheimer that is an amazing cast but mm. you know things like The Great Escape you were talking several A-listers you know in, in one film
1: and even some of the maybe not so A-listers mm. are, are well known you know you've got some you got people from Star Trek in it believe it or not yeah. you know
0: yeah the guy who plays um, Haynes yeah, yeah, he he played um, either a Vulcan or a Romulan, didn't he, in the original soundtrack? Yeah, yeah, He
1: did two episodes, and then you have got people like Angus Lenny, who who obviously played eyes. That yeah. he's well known for playing quite in Crossroads in the in the seventies. Yeah, in that soap opera, um, and he was in Six Three Three Squadron as well. He has he has no Scottish accent in that one. He's got a British accent for
0: that. My, my own own kind of relationship with the film. Mm. First off, The Great Escape is one of those films that we often see. it's on the film eighty nine list. It's on. The main film, 2019, we've got a list of films that we just... Films that are very personal to us that we just can't wait to cover. And, you know, mm. films such as Jaws, Die Hard, Predator, Heat, you know, The Dark Knight, Casablanca. They're films which are just extremely special to us. And for me, The Great Escape is one of those films. And I've been wanting to talk in depth about this film ever since the podcast began. And, mm. you know, quite fittingly now... 2023 is the 60th anniversary of the great escape you know i mentioned it before on a, on a previous episode i think it was our 1917 episode with jacob Rivera and i talked about our you know favorite war films and i, I think mm. if memory serves the great escape was my number one pick it still is it's a film like you steve it, it's a it's a comfort film to me it's a film i've always loved it's a film i've seen countless times and like you know every time it starts it's one of those ones that, and it's a near three hour film, isn't it? It's just, I think it's two hours, 52 minutes.
1: That's right, yeah, 170, 172 minutes.
0: It, it's a long film, but those. They
1: didn't make him like that then, did they? No, no. I think.
0: It's a long film, but you never feel the length. And that's always a sign of a great long film, is when it just is paced in such a way. And, you know, by the time you get to that last act, and I know I'm, I'm jumping ahead, we haven't even started talking about the film proper yet. But the last act of the film, it just absolutely flies by because simply because you know you're on the edge of your seat. It's one of the most tense third reels to a film I've I've ever seen.
1: We cover so much in such a short, maybe in such a short space of time.
0: Let's just go back and um, you know talk about the inception of the film.
2: Put five hundred prisoners of war in a maximum security camp. Give them sports. Recreation, gardening, classes, and what's the only thing they think about? Escape. Give up your hopeless attempts to escape. We're going to devote our energies to sports and gardening, all the cultural pursuits. Meanwhile, we dig. How many are you taking out? 250. 250. The Germans put all their rotten eggs in one barbed wire basket and they hatched the most ingenious escape plan in the history of war. Cedric, manufacturer. Griff, as I said, Taylor. Uh, Nimon Haynes diversions. Which one's a forgery? Uh. They're both are. Huh? It is the sworn duty of all officers to try to escape. Oh. there will be no escapes from this camp. Oh my god, they found Tom. Hold on to yourself, Bartlett. You're 20 feet short. The hole is right here in the open. The guard is between us and the lights. The great escape from a barbed wire camp to a barbed wire country. No tools, no clothes, no credentials, no way out. Yet
0: they made the great escape. John Sturgis, he wanted to adapt Paul Brickhill's book. And he was under contract with MGM at the time. And he pitched it to Louis B. Mayer. But Mayer said that the story was too complicated and the film would be too expensive. But Sturgis' success then in 1960 with The Magnificent Seven made Louis Mayer relent and give the film the green light. Mm. One of the facts about this film, Steve, I think just makes it, is the fact that they eventually decided to film it entirely on location in Germany.
1: Yeah. Yeah. In Britain, Bavaria.
0: Yeah, in Bavaria. Now, as much as you know, much of the first, you know, two thirds of the film is set within you know the, the the POW camp. When we actually get out, you know, following the you know the big escape, it's at that point then that you know you cannot recreate that countryside in you know Southern California or
1: no. They they had six. I think they had six six trays where they could work round, and no it weren't going to happen
0: yeah so then yeah obviously they they moved to this forest in Bavaria they cleared I think about 400 trees on the promise that they would plant two for one and mm. re- replace more than more trees than they actually uprooted. and based on Paul Brickhill's book The Great Escape he'd been a prisoner at Stalagluft 3 the the camp upon which the film's Stalagluft Nord is based and Brickhill's Spitfire had been shot down over Tunisia in 1943. He was captured by the Germans and transferred to Stalag Luft III. It was co-written by James Clavell, the author of Shogun. Co-screenwriter W.R. Burnett had written Little Caesar and the Asphalt Jungle. And he'd also written John Sturgis' Rat Pack film, Sergeants 3. But yeah, going back to that, you know, that decision to shoot in Germany, like the big advantage of that was the availability of World War II German military equipment, which... Wasn't available anywhere else in the world, and we do see quite a bit of it. Certainly, obviously, in in the, in the last act, mm. you know, aside from you know the the, the writer of the book, loads of the, you know the eventual cast, you know, they they served in World War Two. Charles Bronson had he been a B twenty nine tail gunner in the Pacific during World War Two? Yeah,
1: he was also a coal miner earlier in his years, wasn't he?
0: With, yeah, which again fits in perfectly to his uh, mm. his, his role as as Danny, the the, the Tunnel King. Uh, james donald who, who plays the senior british officer ramsey he was in the british army in world war Two, and then when we first meet group captain ramsey he's brought before the camp's commandant von luger played by hans messimer mm. he gives us this important bit of information doesn't he regarding the purpose of the camp that it's to contain all the best escapees from the allied forces put in as he says all their rotten eggs in in one basket, in one basket yeah, yeah. Now Messmer himself, he'd been a POW in a Russian camp in World War II and he'd go on to live until he passed away in 1991. You know, the film's, you could argue, biggest star, Steve McQueen. He was a former Marine. He'd been part of the Honor Guard protecting President Harry S. Truman's yacht. McQueen, he was 32 when they shot The Great Escape and he and Bronson had obviously starred in Sturge's previous film, The Magnificent Seven, alongside James Coburn as well. But they were also in Never So Few.
1: James Garner, James Garner, did, didn't he? He, um, he actually was a scrounger during the Korean War prison he was in.
0: Yeah, he was a scrounger, wasn't he? Yeah, he was in the Korean War. Yeah. And yeah.
1: He... Had, he was made for that, and also Donna Pleasance, wasn't he? He was a prisoner of war. He was in Starlog One, believe it or not.
0: Yeah. Now he was. He was a radio operator, wasn't he? He was aboard um, aboard a, a Lancaster RAF bomber and mm. he was shot down, yeah, and like you say, he spent the last year of the war in a German POW camp, which was Luft 1, which is obviously a sister camp to the one that is you know, based on the one in the film, and he said in interviews how amazed he was at how well the production team had recreated the look of the POW camp in the film. Yeah, he did,
1: yeah, yeah, he did, you know. yeah, because they had to, at the time of doing this, there was the Iron Curtain, so they couldn't actually go to the camp, then he could have aerial shots. Yeah. Uh, so they recreated this on a, on a table. This, um, when it's, you can see that in a museum in Germany still.
0: I just thought for a second, then, Steve? You mentioned the Iron Curtain, and it's like, how many of our younger audience won't even be aware of the East Germany-West Germany split?
1: they wouldn't have heard of the of the wall coming down, would they?
0: You know the fact that when this film was being shot in 62, 63, that you know Germany was properly divided in two, wasn't it?
1: Mm. You have to really th- re- rethink what you're thinking about for the times. Yeah, certainly. Although <clears throat> It's just it's completely different time and and how everything worked then is just completely different to now and I say the world is always changing.
0: Yeah and then following that bit of exposition from Von Luger about you know the purpose of this camp i love how as soon as we meet Danny you know Charles Bronson's character you know his fellow tunneler Willie, James Coburn's character Sedgwick Hiltz and Ives they're all immediately making attempts to either escape or to scope the place out for opportunities to escape that you know the film just doesn't waste any time whatsoever
1: no i mean i like to i like the way that Sedgwick when they were asking even then they were trying to cause a diversion and he says oh what should we do but you know, band practice or choir singing. He said, "No, no, no, knuckles." It's just the way he comes out with that.
0: Yes, that's right. Yeah, so they start a bit of a fist fight then, and, and all the men are making their own little individual attempts to escape. And then when we first meet uh, Steve McQueen, he throws the baseball, doesn't he, over the um the the, the, the little barbed wire perimeter. The wire
1: of I think was it a like wire of death they were calling. Yeah, it or something? Yeah. And you shouldn't cross it. <laughs> Look at the blind spot.
2: Hey. Don't shoot! You fool! to cross a wire is death! What wire? This wire! The only wire! Oh. That's absolutely forbidden to cross it, you know that. Yeah, but my baseball rolled over there. How am I gonna get my baseball? You first ask permission. Oh, okay. Get my baseball! Stop this nonsense! Get over the wire! Immediately! Okay. You stay there. Out of the way. What are you doing over here, Bazawa? Well, like I told Max here, I was trying to get my gun. What were you doing, Bazawa? Well, like I told Max, I was trying to cut my way through your wire because I want to get out. But, uh... You speak German? Jawohl, all Oberst. Why your cutters? all ja, the robust. I have had the pleasure of knowing quite a number of British officers since this war, and I flatter myself that we understand one another. You are the first American officer I've met. Hills, isn't it? Captain Hills, actually. 17 escape attempts. 18, sir. Tunnelman, Engineer. Flyer. I suppose what's called in the American army a hotshot pilot. Uh-huh. Unfortunately, you were shot down anyway. So we are both grounded for the duration of the war. Well, you speak for yourself, Colonel. You have other plans. I haven't seen Berlin yet, from the ground or from the air, and I plan on doing both before the war is over. Are all American officers so ill-mannered? About 99%. Then perhaps while you are with us, you will have a chance to learn some. Ten days isolation health. Captain Hilts? Twenty days. Right. Oh, uh, you'll still be here when I get out. Cooler.
0: Yeah, when um, when he confronts Hiltz after he makes that uh, you know kind of pitiful make for the fence, probably just to scope it out, isn't it? Yeah,
1: but well he did have white, he did have wire cutters in his pocket, so if he had a chance I think he would have gone for it. Yeah.
0: And then Von Luger decides to make an example of Hilt and also Ives uh, for his insolence and throws him into the cooler, which will be for the first time. And McQueen felt and we you know we see from the start, don't we? About you know the way that he you know, he shows his badge on his lapel and he's reminding Ron Luger uh, Captain Hilts, you know? Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. McQueen felt that the part of Virgil Hilts, this rebellious loner who who learns to be a team player, was just ready made for him. And then at the twenty-six minute mark, and you know that a lot goes on in that first twenty-five minutes.
1: There's a lot of of conversation and a lot of burying in the um, leftover foliage that they've cut down from the trees.
0: And it's the 26-minute mark, then, that we meet Squadron Leader Bartlett, or Big X, as he's known, played by Richard Attenborough. I love that little bit. Obviously, because Big X is is the most, in terms of the the Germans' value of the prisoners, he is like the, the, the big cheese, isn't he?
1: I think the really the way they're thinking is that he is more <clears throat> more working for a, a bigger organisation, and the SS were were on his case constantly, which I think was was a downfall. But they're thinking more not in terms of just escaping, but they're more to do with spies and and stuff like that, which they weren't to do with. It was that was completely opposite of what they were.
0: Yeah, because you know his job was to, it was disruption, wasn't it? It was to mm. it was to cause as much disruption for the the Germans for the Nazis as possible, because the more German soldiers and and the more the German effort is diverted to finding these escaped prisoners and you know bringing them back then if every camp has got that problem to cope with then you know you could say that potentially several million German soldiers could be diverted from the war effort which would make then eventual things like the D-Day landings you know that much more of a a possible Mm. win for us because the German numbers are diminished because you know their efforts are needed elsewhere. So, you know, in terms of that, ultimately, that is what caused Hitler to make that horrendous order that we'll come to mm-hmm. towards the end. Yeah, but I, I love how, as the Gestapo men are leaving von Lukas' office, having, you know, delivered Bartlett to him.
1: <laughs> I know what you're going to say. <laughs> yeah,
0: he, he's immediately shown to be Luftwaffe first and foremost, as opposed to Gestapo and Nazi, when he forgets to say how Hitler and raise his hand.
1: Yeah, they all sort of give him a glare at Look at yeah, thing, you know. And he's
0: kind of like, oh, how silly of me. But yeah. he's
1: looking down. He's writing something on the paper. and Then he just sort of raises his arm up slightly yeah. and says, yeah,
0: "Okay, whatever." That little touch is something. that Immediately makes us warm to him a little, doesn't it? And because oh,
1: I liked him, I really, I really did.
0: All these prisoner of war camps were run by the Luftwaffe, you know, the German air force, and they mm. were, if anything, the least Nazi of all the, the German army, you know, the German armed forces. And if anything, you know, they would have a degree of respect for the, you know, the prisoners that they were in charge of.
1: Yeah, because even the, even um, the SBOs and everybody else there, that they would treat them with salutes, yeah. even though they were prisoners of war, which was a bit of respect to have anyway. I think.
0: Yeah, well, you know, it was important to point out that the the Geneva Convention kind of you know acted as an agreement that would protect prisoners of war. You know, they they had an allowance, they were allowed, um, you know, they had care packages from the Red Cross and you know other mm. charities. You know, there were certain things that. Um, officers didn't have to work you know they they weren't put to menial tasks and that that was something that was was an agreement that you know the germans for the most part had to abide by or it was in their interests to abide by
1: i think it was yeah the majority should we say did
0: yeah because obviously there were german men in russian prison camps and they would hope that their own men would be treated the same by the russians
1: Mm-hmm. yeah, of course.
0: Yeah, I just love that little bit because, you know, it does go to show that, you know, Von Luger, you know, he's got a job to do.
1: And he, he, he does it well, but yeah. I, I do feel sorry for him because with the amount of people that he was reading off in that first in that first scene, yeah, with how many had done these escape attempts. Yeah. He was gobsmacked, you know. Yeah. Even some would jump I think it was I was jumping out of the, the, the um the truck on the way in. Yeah. They were just on it all the time.
0: Oh. No, Attenborough... He'd flown with the RAF during World War Two, and I think his role in The Great Escape was—it was his first lead part in an American film—and he became good friends with Steve McQueen on The Great Escape, and they worked together again on The Sand Pebbles in 1966. That's a film we talked about in our James episode, and they remained friends until McQueen's death from cancer in 1980
1: yeah yeah it actually that was very similar to James Garner as well that was another friendship that was born for yeah. the love of, of of cars
0: yeah because obviously you know, McQueen and Garner and you know they would go on to make competing films a few years later of, of a sort that you know James Garner did Grand Prix for John Frankenheimer and mm. Steve McQueen you know his passion project Le Mans came out in it's that 71? Yeah. yeah yeah and they weren't far apart were they no think. no so. no two very similar films in a lot of ways great movies yeah and then Hendley, the scrounger, meets Blythe, the forger, played by James Garner and uh, Donald Pleasance. And then a strong friendship is formed. And I just love how the film assigns them all roles or titles, if you will. Mm. And as you said, Garner had actually been a, a scrounger in the Korean War. But yeah, it, it's the giving of titles. Part of like, the, the research of this was just reminding me of, like, well, what's, what's Cavendish's title? Oh yeah, he's the surveyor. What's, what's Griffith? Yeah. Obviously, he's the tailor. of the lesser-known ones.
1: Yeah, and you forget you forget people like him as much as you've got the you've got the tunnel king and you know you got Ashley Pitt for dispersal dispersal
0: and, uh, of course for getting rid of all the mud and then you've got yeah um, McDonald is intelligence yeah. Gordon Jackson uh, what uh, James Coburn he's the manufacturer, manufacturer. yeah he makes all the stuff and he makes the air pump and yeah I oh, just like, they're
1: all made, they're using it looks like they'll be using tin cans for all the um, they were. Knocking them together for doing sort of <coughs> pipe work. Yeah, yeah, the, it was it area. was like
0: yeah, it was it was food cans, um, cut yeah. the ends off, and yeah, stick them all together, and you'd have pipe work to obviously ventilate the tunnels. They were they were so so inventive.
1: But this actually happened as well. We've got to forget yeah. for a minute that a lot of this is based on truth. Some of it's compressed, obviously. What was going on? But this actually happened. If you listen to some, you you listen to some of the stories of the people that actually were in it. Awful, but they were all heroes in one way. For this, you know.
0: Yeah.
2: We uh, don't necessarily want to interfere. It's just that. Well, what sort of blitz were you contemplating? Well, we sneak out at night to a spot I found near the wire, a blind spot. Then we dig straight down three feet, take the dirt, spread it on top so it won't make a pile, and then straight out. Ives here is a tunnel man, so he digs in front, pushes the dirt behind him, and I stash it behind me. Then we just burrow right through the dirt like a couple of moles. Then by dawn, we're under the wire, across the open space, into the woods, and gone. Well, uh, when do you intend to try this? Hmm? When do you intend to try it? Oh, tonight. Hiltz, uh, this may not be quite the right time for this sort of thing. Look, sir, I've been in the bag nearly three
1: years now, bloody close to being wire-happy. It's a blitz out for me or forget it. It'll work. I know it will.
2: Good luck. Thank you. Hilt, um, how do you breathe? Well, we got a steel rod with hinges on it and we shove it up and make air holes as we go along. Good night, sir. Why didn't anybody think of that before? It's so stupid, it's positively brilliant. Oh, but it'll bring every goon in the camp down on top of us. I don't know. Perhaps we're being too clever. If we stop all the breakouts, we may only convince the goons that we must be tunneling. I hope it works. If it doesn't, those two are going to be in the cooler for an awful long time.
0: You are not too far into the film. Your big ex gives his big plan, doesn't he? And that is, we're not going to be sending men out in twos and threes and small numbers. He intends to, you know, as big a prison breakout as the Germans have ever seen. So then work then begins on the tunnels, Tom, Dick and Harry. Hiltz and Ives uh, are both captured after their first proper escape attempt and are put back into the cooler. And it's at that point then that we, we really start to see that Ives is breaking. You know, he's he's been captive for too long and you can see that he can't cope with much more of this.
1: No, and they and they're aware of that as well, aren't they? When they when they last come out, and they ask about doing another escape attempt, and they were saying that you know you know I've just cracking up. Maybe yeah. it's best he goes in the tunnel. Um, yeah,
0: and like I said, according to the Geneva Convention, officers couldn't be put to work, which is why in the camp in the film, most of them are seen passing the time with these like various leisure activities. Now, Steve. Think back to that bit when Hiltz is first talking to Ives in the cooler when they first get put in together after the the jumping over the barbed wire fence. Yeah. There's a little bit where Ives mentions a hobby horse, and Hiltz kind of goes mm, hobby horse because he talks about being a jockey, doesn't he? Yeah, and he doesn't know
1: what he's, he doesn't understand what he's talking about.
0: Now, in my research, you know, into this episode and, and watching all the behind the scenes stuff on on the on the DVD, they they mention what the hobby horse was. Now, it was a. You know, like a hobby horse that you would have in, in gymnastics where you know you would jump over this like sort of tr- almost um, pyramid shaped you know flat top wooden box they would bring it out into the exercise yard but inside there would be a prisoner and he'd kind of be like sort of supported halfway up it and when they put the box down he would drop earth from the tunnels onto the ground right that obviously isn't in the final film i've got some vague recollection though of seeing it have i seen it in a different war film because there's that weird thing that Hilts mentions it it's never seen in the film again. But then there's also no. mention of the fact that after, I think, an initial screening, I think it was in Santa Monica, Sturgis cut 10 minutes out of the film after this preview screening. Now, I'm wondering if that hobby horse scene was part of the excise footage and maybe it was put back in into a TV version, because obviously sometimes even TV versions of long films would be expanded. You know. Like oh, yeah, the,
1: like so the, the same way that when The Godfather was broadcast on TV. Well, when
0: Star Trek The Motion Picture had additional stuff put in for the TV version. But do you ever yeah. remember seeing that hobby horse scene? Never, no. I mean, I've
1: watched this film. I've seen, I've, I've lost count over the years, same time I've watched it, even though I've watched it about three times in this week as well. I, I know, I think I've seen it elsewhere in some of the movies because it's the idea of hiding, hiding someone inside a,
0: <clears throat> it's the old Roman trick, isn't it? Yeah, but it's just the fact that he mentions it and then mm. it's like, ah, oh, that's a good idea. And then we never see it again. No. But then that would fit in with, you know, Ashley Pitt's, kind of dispersal plan of ways to get rid of the mud but yeah mm. the thing I, I thought have i made that up in my mind or have i have i seen it in maybe a different documentary on the film elsewhere i
1: well there was a sequel wasn't there i never saw the there was some sort of sequel for tv that tried to do what that was about I was never, never
0: it it's with um it's with christopher reeve yeah christopher reeve judd hirsch 1988 it was, yeah the great escape to the untold story it was um a tv movie
1: so it might have been, it. Might, unless you saw that and that did have something similar to that.
0: Possibly, yeah, it could have <clears> been that. But yeah, like I said, you know, the obviously the officers weren't able to be put to work, so we see them doing all these leisure things like gardening and stuff like that. And then <laughs> Hendley, James Garner's character, strikes up a friendship of sorts with one of the guards, Werner, played by Robert Graff. <laughs> the ferret. The ferret. <laughs> I, 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 love, I love the way that Hendley, like, subtly manipulates him.
1: Well, even the first time he sees him early on, he says, you know... He's standing by the truck and he says, What are you doing? He says, I'm I'm stealing tools. Tools, cooler. No, 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 I'm only joking. No. Yeah. And he starts criticizing him, thinking that why of America joined the British when he's going back through the history books saying yeah. that you know we burnt their capital and all of this. And like, yeah. oh, I just love it. It's
0: really-. uh, you know, Germans who were compromised and cooperate with the POWs were called Team Germans. Mm. Yeah, I, I just love that little relationship between him and uh, and Werner. It
1: got even, and- even better, did not it, with the um, stealing his wallet? <laughs>
0: Yeah, he, he kind of gets himself into a bit of trouble, doesn't he, when he finds out that um, he's got, you know, butter from the Commandant, mm. which has clearly been stolen. And then he's, you know, he, he, he's like, oh, you know, it, it's fine, it's fine. Come on, come back in. He's trying to get him back into the hut and loo with chocolate. Meanwhile, obviously, he's pickpocketing him for his wallet.
1: Yeah, he knew that, obviously, that was Gordon Jackson's character. brought That That was the food package for the whole organisation yeah. to help do the scrounging. And, yeah, um,
0: and he gave it all up just to get the documents, yeah.
1: Yeah, just to show him that he knew that if he showed him that butter, he would flip. So yeah. he knew that he would do that, and that was a chance for him to go around and smother him and yeah. his pocket his wallet out.
0: Yeah, it's, I just love all these little distractions and and you know the the ones that are, that are played like kind of on mass, like the the bird classes, which oh, uh, God, yeah. uh, Donald Pleasance's character does. <laughs> what's the, what's that bird, Is that something? The Shrike.
1: It was a black chested, yeah, black crested uh, shrike. Uh, yeah, that's yeah, it, yeah. yeah. And he even does he's even taught, he's saying, right, and this is what it sounds like. So he was doing the whistling of the bird. Yeah. And the the other um, guard in there, Scott Bourne, says, you know, Andy walks in and sort of says, you know, didn't know you've taken to birds. Yeah. sort of gets miffed and walks out.
0: It's like a little details, isn't it? Like when um, Bartlett visits Griffith, the tailor and, and mm. Griffith is showing him all of the clothes he's making for the escapees <laughs> and how they're doing it and like shaving yeah. fabric down with a razor blade just to make them look different. Yeah, You know, towards the end, when you see them escaping and they've got suitcases, they were made out of cardboard covered in boot polish. Mm. They couldn't be handled like you would you know, a proper heavy duty leather, you know, no, hard no. case, but.
1: I mean, there was, there was like big containers of buttons. You yeah. know, where did he find all his stuff? Yeah. And even actually, when he asked a question, um and handy said, uh, "Don't ask." Yeah. Don't <laughs> ask. They, they had these. They had, I don't know how they w- would do this, but obviously they had sections of the um, of the areas where they they could take a cut out of the wall and pull it out and would yeah. store all the stuff in there. Yeah, just so they wouldn't be. Seen by the uh, the guards that might do their daily checks.
0: Well, yeah, you know, all the places that they, they disperse the earth, like up up in the rafters, that was so risky.
1: Yeah, because that would have been bowing though that wood, because it wouldn't have been that well made. To be fair, I don't think even no. in those times.
0: Yeah, and you know the, the the camp was made in such a way that all of the barracks were up off the ground on kind of um, you know brick <clears throat> stilts, brick stilts, which would allow the guards to look underneath. And you know, in in reality, that you know the, the actual POW soldiers which were being kept at these camps they actually believed that the germans were rigging the barracks with you know sound equipment with equipment in the ground you know to look for seismic kind of activity vibrations and stuff from tunneling you know they even thought that when they were holding their meetings there was a chance that the germans had set up microphones and were listening in
1: i love the way and they had this throughout the movie in the first two parts where they would have someone keep an eye out for it for a guard Hmm. And the moment someone comes within four feet or whatever, someone lifts up a cup, oh, the does a bit system. of washing, and then they know straight away they've gone through it and it's so quick that they can shut down what they're doing Yeah, uh, just so they don't see what they're getting up to sort of thing. It's just it's
0: so good. And do you know something which I like that just does? Bearing in mind this is a huge cast and you know the main core cast, is so many of them, he never uses close-ups. And I think it's something that is done consciously because it's always about these men as a group. It's never about them as individuals.
1: No, but I think they always seem to be in pairs as well. Yeah. A lot of the time. Yeah. And I mean, that's maybe the way they went with, with the escape and how people went their separate ways. Yeah. You know, it was perfect. Even, even, the, even when they were doing the,
0: you know, going a bit
1: later about the scripts and stuff. Um, he was a stickler for how he was filming stuff
0: there. And, um, Let's talk about the script because there were six writers on this film, and when they started filming it, they didn't have a completed script because they were having no. so much trouble adapting the book, you know, in a filmable way. And you know, McQueen had a big issue that he almost walked out on the film, didn't he? Because he didn't like what Sturgis yep. was doing with his character and felt that his
1: what Sturgis shouldn't have done, which he did do, was after six weeks of shooting, they, they, they showed him what they'd filmed.
0: He did, didn't he? And, and um, Mc, yeah, McQueen Steve walked, McQueen out, walked yeah. out. yeah. Yeah. And then James Garner tells us that brilliant story about the fact that uh, one night after shooting, he and James Coburn and McQueen went back to Garner's place in Munich. And and they sat McQueen down after he'd walked out of this show and said, look, Steve, what is your problem? You know, what exactly do you not like about your character? And he was like, well, I don't know. It's just something doesn't feel right. And, And, you know, they're trying to hammer it out of him. And eventually they came to the conclusion that what he wanted was for Hills to be the hero.
1: But he was, is not he? He was, as but as Garner said, yeah, he, you know, he was a hero. What he was doing, absolutely. And well, yeah, he, I think his his missus was a bit at the time. I think she was couldn't believe it. Yeah, because he um, and
0: Ives were, you know, escaping successfully and then allowing themselves to get caught to come back in to give mm. Bartlett and the others intelligence about their surroundings, about the local train stations, anything they could. So essentially, there yeah, they were heroes. And all mm. it took was, you know, a bit of rubbing of McQueen's ego just to cool him down. Mm. And then obviously later on in the film, a lot of the stuff which was, you know, it could be argued that the whole motorcycle thing was McQueen's doing. You
1: know. Well, yeah, we'll get onto that later because there's a, quite a lot to talk about. about oh, that, yeah. yeah. Quite a bit um, to
0: unpack there.
1: Oh, God, yeah. And the funny thing also, as much as Garner was helping, um, Donald Pleasant couldn't understand the makings of a superstar like that. Yeah. Where he was... Mild man had been working in the theatre and you know they actually stopped stopped shooting parts where McQueen was supposed to be in because they weren't sure he was coming back.
0: Can you imagine, Steve? Can you imagine a version of this film without McQueen?
1: Oh no. no. I mean, I have to say this now. My mum and dad named named me after Steve McQueen, so No way. You for that. Yeah.
0: <laughs> that is awesome.
1: And that's why I I I have got a very much fondness for Steve McQueen over the years. Maybe not more for that because it's more of a privilege from my parents to do that, but I loved his career throughout. This is one of the, it's probably about three, maybe three, three or four movies, which is the top cream, you know. Yeah. And this one sits on top.
0: Yeah, he's he's one of my favorite actors. And Virgil Hiltz, when I was a kid, was just, again, not to say too much, we'll come on to this later. Mm. So then, yeah, meanwhile, Hiltz and Ives are released from the cooler, and then Hiltz learns of, you know, the enormity of Big X's plan. What was that beer advert, Steve, back in the eighties where it took little bits from this scene? Especially the bit where he yes. says two hundred and fifty. It was I'm sure it was a it was a British beer advert, wasn't it?
1: Now didn't they do you know there was at some point where they got the technology for cutting movies into adverts, didn't they? Do yeah, they remember? did
0: it with the Ford Puma advert, didn't he, with um yeah. a Bullet.
1: That's right. They no, did it with that. McQueen Right. And obviously, I think they. Use, I think the, a lot of the technology. I even think when Forrest Gump was made, I think something was. I think there, there was a Great Escape snippet thrown in some beer advert. Not sure if it might have been Hofmeister or something like that, but
0: ah, all- ah, Steve, it was a Holston pills.
1: Ah, um, there you go. Got close Hofmeister and Holston pills are to the. It was a
0: Holston pills advert. It was 1989, and it recreated scenes from the film, and it had an actor kind of like burrowing into the. Um, that's it. Into yeah, the barracks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. Yeah, yeah. Right. remember. And in fact, it was played by um Griff Jones.
1: Oh god, yeah. yeah, you're right.
0: Holy cow. And people might not know who he is, but he was no. a very
1: very good comedian. Yeah. And part of the Nottinghamshire Got News team.
0: Meanwhile, in behind the scenes that the Munich weather was really plaguing the production. Now, there was snow in July, and, and rain most of the time. In reality, the actual escape was it was March 24th, 1944, and when they actually broke out, there was snow on the ground. That's right, yeah. But, you know, fortunately a lot of the film, uh, certainly in the first half of the film, is, is shot indoors, so obviously they had to do a lot of that first, because mm. of the, the weather. Thankfully, you know, the weather broke for the outdoor scenes after that, which, mm. you got to say it, some of the outdoor, you know, photography, the the Swiss-German border, the scenes near the border to Austria—it's one of the most gorgeous-looking films I've ever seen.
1: When you see um, the, the plane that Henley and, yeah. and that they still and they're flying over all that sort of area, that sort of all that luscious green and the mountains, and you got there's a castle there as well, one of the Bavarian castles or something. In I that, think in, in, that
0: is King Ludwig's nuschwanstein Castle in Bavaria. Pretty mm. sure. It's um, it's not an ancient castle. It's one that is only maybe one hundred eighty years old, something like that. And I think King Ludwig built it just as a, a, a kind of a show of opulence.
1: Mm. And I think that's been used many times oh, in movies yeah. as
0: well. The, the the potato alcohol distilling scene. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. That is obviously just you know something for the American POWs for their little Independence Day celebration. And in reality when tunnel tom was discovered it was not on the 4th of july as depicted in the film Mm. and at the point where the tunnel was discovered only the upward shaft remained to be dug and it had extended 140 feet out past the perimeter fence the germans then blew up uh, the tunnel that they'd found but they overloaded the charge which caved in both the tunnel and the framework and roof of barracks 123 and then in the film at this point Ives has had enough, and he makes mm. a break for the barbed wire fence, and hilts <coughs> heroically, you know, saying he wasn't a hero, but again, he risked his life by trying this was, to.
1: This was being a hero, wasn't it? As well. Yeah, it
0: was. Yeah, he he tries to stop the guards, but then they shoot Ives on the fence, and that's one of the it's one of the film's first real gut punch moments, isn't it?
1: Mm. And they say, I can see why it was cut for TV at the time, but it's it's very horrific because you, I you know, you'd have thought the gun they would have shot their guns in the air and said. Halt! Yeah. You know what you're doing, and then they could have pulled him off that rubber barbed wire. If you know what we're talking about, that yeah. later the rubber barbed wire had take him off of that. But no, they went out for the kill.
0: And um... I don't think it's the fact that you know it's, it's graphic when he gets shot, because it's not like you see squibs of his, you know, back getting bummed a bit. It's just the mm. fact that he hangs on the barbed wire fence, and it's just that's really like inhumane, isn't it?
1: It is, it is, it is. It is disturbing in a way. And you get to love Ives um, through the movie as well. And yeah. you didn't expect that first on the first
0: viewing. Yeah, and then after the death of Ives and Hilson tells Bart that he's going to escape that night through the fence. Yeah. And then meanwhile, Danny and the rest of them uh, keep digging throughout the remaining tunnels and Hiltz then is brought back having allowed himself to be caught and then we see Blythe losing it momentarily with his, his, his kind of like forger assistant Smithy for making a mistake on the documents that they're faking yeah. and then Miss, we see an Eagle or something didn't they? Yeah that's right yeah there was also two and he only did one or something like that and then we see Blythe's kind of failing eyesight from his own point of view which he later tells Hendley is something called progressive myopia yeah yeah I just love the way like some of these things are fed into the film, and then probably I think the film's best setup and payoff moment is the bit where McDonald is testing the men in terms of their German and their ability to pass if stopped by <laughs> patrols after their escape, and then Haynes slips up yeah, and Mac yeah. pulls him on it. Something that'll obviously crop up in one of the film's most famous sequences later. We'll
1: bite, we'll bite someone on the backside, so yeah, on there.
0: yeah. And then Bly then is practicing picking up the pin in his room. To fool the Counting others. Counting the steps. Yeah, that you yeah. can actually see. But, you know, Hendy's too smart. He's already worked out that something's wrong.
1: Because he asked him, he said, do you like my suit? Oh, like and he said, yeah, yeah, nice. And he said, what do you think of mine? He went, yeah, yeah, very yeah, good. Great. He wasn't, yeah. wearing, no, he's wasn't just wearing his it, normal so.
0: clothes, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. Later then, the way the Hendy challenges Bartlett on his decision to not allow Blythe to go by pointing out, you know, how much of a risk Bartlett is to the mission, given the fact that he is the most well-known of all of them, and every Gestapo officer will have his face ingrained into their memory. I'm
1: sure there'll have been posters or there'll be documentation of, of, of his, his face. Yeah. That is more jeopardising to that than anything else.
0: Yeah, of course, yeah. And I love the digging music. And where do we start on Elmer Bernstein's score?
1: <laughs> From the beginning of the
0: movie, really. Exactly. Because Cause after one too many cave-ins, Danny makes a great a break to escape through the fence and is stopped by Willie. And then he admits his, his crippling claustrophobia, something he's had since he was a young boy. Mm. But I just love that tunnel in music. And it just every time I hear it, all I can all I can think of is is a guy lying down in like this yeah. two foot by two foot eight tunnel, you know. And, and the problem we had in the real life camp was this this earth, great, really soft, a lot of sand content, so it, you know, yeah. you could essentially have dug through it with minimal tooling, but all the more harder then to shore up because it's softer and it is far more prone to cave Mm. You know, it wasn't like you know occasional bits of bedrock to give it a bit of stability. This this was lethal. This was and can you think of anything worse than being buried alive underground?
1: No, I thought didn't I say because um, Charles Bronson was a coal miner, he gave him insight into building tunnels and stuff. Yeah. Actually, could you talk about the tunnel itself? Now, that was all inside the sound studio, yeah. the Bavarian Film Studios. And that went from one end of the the, the um, building to the other on a dolly with a camera. And if you stand further back, it's just it was just cut in half basically for the yeah. whole the whole tunnel section. Really clever. I didn't realise that how they said that. You were thinking it was done differently to that, but yeah, it was a cut in half, and that was just shared up with wood either side. They were used in the middle section, filming that, thinking they are inside this tunnel, but it was wide open yeah. uh, with the cameras.
0: But then there are shots where you're looking down the tunnel and it was a kind of complete tunnel.
1: And it gives you that claustrophobic feeling as well, oh,
0: doesn't it? 100%. Yeah, really does, and I, I don't particularly, I don't like confined spaces at all. The Descent is one of the most terrifying films I've ever I've seen. I've
1: been in a few tight spots, um, tight places for work, yeah. and I've actually been down those sort of tunnels and mm. down in before, and yeah, it's um, it's not pretty.
0: No, I don't say that. No. And then Hilts is then he's released from the cooler, isn't he? And mm. and later that night they finally you know make their big escape. Now, like I said, in real life it happened on the night of March 24th, 1944. And at this point now, Danny just he can't cope, and you know he bails back to the barrack uh, with Willie. You know, trying to keep him calm and then Hilt breaks through the surface and then the tunnels 20 feet short of what they were aiming for which was that line of trees beyond the fence
1: because it would have been such easy to just get out yeah. and get everyone out wouldn't it? yeah
0: and it's at this point that the the tension begins and it just does not let up for the entire final act yeah and add into these like huge levels of tension at this stage when they eventually do get out then they're short but then you know think oh you know we're short well we'll just have to abandon and we'll keep digging but then as Bartlett points out no we can't the papers are all dated for tomorrow Mm. all the work we've done with regards to forging and the plans this has to go ahead tonight so then Hiltz comes up with this idea we're 20 meters short or 20 feet short get 30 Mm. feet of rope I'll go up into the tree line when the guards are not looking and we'll have a, a signal system which again it, it just adds to the tension, doesn't it?
1: And not realising when you look out the tunnel and you can see the guards walking up and down out, outside that fence line. Yeah. Obviously, they were saying, he was saying, that. look, don't worry about it. The guards are focusing on the prison itself, the camp, yeah. not on us. And he smiles, no. yeah. the Queen smiles like that. And he thought, yeah, yeah, okay, we'll go for it.
0: Yeah, and then at that point then, the sirens sound, but air it's eight. not because the alarm's ringing. Yeah, it's an air raid, which gives them like a well-timed distraction, but Obviously, because they don't want the planes to see the camp, the Germans automatically, following an air raid or doing an air raid, will cut the, the power, causing the lights to go out. And then, obviously, throwing Danny into a mad panic.
1: <laughs> bless it, I really felt sorry for him. He was going so. Sort yeah. Of, uh, oh, uh, oh. Yeah. He was re- and I thought, yeah, I know what he's feeling like, bless yeah. him.
0: And then Danny and Willie get out, as do Mac and Bartlett, but... Cavendish and Griffith are seen by the guard Are oh, the scene with the guard where the, they, they hear, the two guards hear the noise and isn't it the same blonde guard the one that um, didn't want to stay in the, in listening to the bird lesson so actually left I'm yeah, sure yeah, it's I've the a, same guard I've
1: actually I've got it on in the background at the minute and we are timing this so right because that's happening right now on <laughs> wow. the screen and he's there yeah, he's the one that's looking around but Cavendish being a complete idiot sort of loses his footing a bit and drops with his parcel on his chest and he's literally
0: yeah, but he would, I think he would have made it if it wasn't for the fact that Griffith just panics and pops his head up.
1: Well, he's sweating down at the minute, yeah. looking up there with that rope not moving.
0: But then Griffith is caught and the alarm is raised, but Cavendish, fortunately, makes a break for the trees and gets the hilts. But that's it then. you know, the, Obviously, the alarms are sounded. And in reality, and you know, the film did adhere to this as it was, 76 men escaped. That's right, yeah. Then we're at a German train station the next day. And I just love how the men are all just going about their business, but all having to ignore each other.
1: Scattered. Scattered, yeah.
0: Sedgwick steals a bicycle. Now, the the one I think of that was probably the one that was obviously going to get caught was Haynes, the Canadian, because he was wearing a German officer's uniform. How did he think that he was... I know he spoke very good German, Mm. but surely, you know, having a lone German soldier travelling... Through Bavaria, through Germany, it, it, it's going to be raising suspicions. Why is he on his own?
1: Unless he was on, unless he was on leave or something. Yeah, potentially. Um, but he yeah. did. But he didn't. Did they give
0: this soldier's leave?
1: I'm guessing they must. Surely, must have had leave at some point. Maybe I don't know how they would have done it, but he would. If he was on leave, he would have been carrying some sort of yeah. Um, package.
0: Yeah. The the one I think that's got the best chance is Cedric because he just looks like you know a guy about the country, and when he steals that bicycle and he's just leisurely driving through the.
1: He's so tall. i all keep saying this about, about, um, about James him. James Coburn. Yeah, he's so tall and he never slouches in his acting. Yeah. You notice that. He, he stands rigid upright and he just sits there, you know, stands there, snips it, clips the um, the padlock quietly as ever and just goes his merry way. Yeah. And just slowly just, with the music, the way, the motif of him, with that music just going up, he just sits there and cycles away. Not fast or anything else, just leisurely like a Sunday afternoon yeah. and just
0: Goes into the distance, And Cedric takes the bicycle many of the others, as they did in real life, took the trains. Obviously, it was going to be the quickest way out. Mm. Now, it was McQueen's idea that Hilts steal a German motorcycle, leading to... This is going to be a bold statement, Steve. Yeah. 103 episodes in. But I genuinely do think that the scene that follows, involving Hilts on a motorcycle, is my favourite sequence in any film ever. Because it's several scenes cut together, it's not a scene as such, it's a sequence...
1: And the sequence is interrupted with other, yeah. We're not just concentrate on him, but we go back to someone no. else,
0: and it, it works. Mm. And unlike, let me let me give you an example of somewhere where it doesn't work. Take that epic lightsaber duel in the Phantom Menace between Qui Gon, Obi Wan, mm. and Darth Maul. Yeah. That is frigging awesome. Mm. One of the greatest bits of, you could argue it's over choreographed, but I, I I'll give it a pass. I think it's awesome. When you're watching it in the film, it's interspersed with two other things that's going on, which is the space battle with Little Anakin and the battle of the gun guns, Two just mm. absolute loads of garbage. And then when you're taking this amazing scene and you're interspersing it with crap, it just takes away from the good stuff. Whereas this stuff with Hilts making his escape, you're interspersing it with stuff that's equally gripping. Yeah. But when you come back to Hilts and he's got his own little bit of music as well from Bernstein, mm. it, it's just constantly amping up the wow factor, the kind of that sense of awe and just amazement and just every time I watch this film and I've said this before this is something I have mentioned before on the podcast every time I watch the scene mm. and I know I'm skipping ahead but when he makes the jump I'm always thinking you're going to make it this time helps <laughs> well,
1: but it's that clever editing isn't
0: it oh yeah the editing is superb because it was Bud Eakins wasn't it was, yeah. and again we're skipping ahead well, but look let's just save it let's do it chronologically mm. anyway yeah McQueen's idea that he'll steal a motorcycle Meanwhile, Danny and Willie find a rowing boat. Another great idea. Yeah. Two men lazily rowing down down the river. Who's going to stop them? Who's going to stop them? Yeah. Cavendish, quite foolishly, hitches a lift in a truck.
1: But how did that work? Because yeah, uh, if we did, if his
0: German is good enough, but you know, a long conversation. But how did
1: they know he when they when they pulled up? around the corner at that point from that journey he was taking with that guy, that they were all gonna be sitting there. I always wondered that.
0: Yes, I do, because it's not like he could like um, send a text message ahead, <laughs> no, <is it? laughs> he
1: got his mobile out and said, oh, he's here, he's
0: Yeah, and then this is where the intercutting just works, because then we cut back to Hiltz. He's obviously set up the, the, the thing with the tripwire, Mm. knocks buddy Gins off the bike. You know, his you know, that, that was his motorcycle you know racing buddy who back in the States he said, look, how would you fancy um Dublin for me in, in Germany in the film I'm gonna start on? And and Ekins was like, Yeah yeah okay yeah, he, did, then, he did
1: he thought yeah whatever and didn't realize yeah. you know, what he was saying until he until he asked and, and then, then said, weeks um, or months
0: later Yeah
1: do you want to get he said get a suit. What do you mean get a suit? I want you to meet the director
0: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah and then he met Sturgis did mm. he and Sturgis just was mm. like Yeah you'll do. You'll do as a stand in for McQueen. And then You know, he sets up the trap and then you see him... He drives up out of the ditch, having obviously put the um, German officer's uniform Mm. on. And then I love how, as he rides off, the camera pans up on a crane... Just to give that amazing aerial viewpoint as he rides away. And it's a shot that Sturgis uses several times mm. in this Hiltz motorcycle sequence. The Gestapo then make their way through the train, which most of our men are on. And whilst Ashley Pitt and the others fool them. And I, I love the fact that Ashley Pitt, when he starts to get a bit nervous, he decides to take the glasses out and put them on. It just makes him look like a Nazi. He
1: did. Yeah, no, you're he right. Does like a, he does look like He does, German.
0: doesn't Because he? he's got he blonde hair
1: as well, remember. So it was a given, wasn't it, really? Yeah. Uh, Henley was walked up behind where we w- w- sat down and just whispered in his ear,
0: "Tally ho, tally ho, <laughs> tally ho!" And yeah, you know they make him the way through the train. Hendley, he decides to jump off the train with Blythe. Mm. You know he he's not going to pass muster, is he? He's not going to pass us as a German. And then we're back to Hilts again. And I love these the way that every time we get back to Hilts it's just kind of up in the adrenaline. And he then stops as he sees the border, and he just says to himself, "Switzerland." Mm. Like, you can see the mountains in the background I know um, it's, it's perfect as it is but if I could change anything in one film just to see it happen I'd have him escape but you'd be robbing the film then of, of, of a bit of a high point ending after such a downer mm-hmm. but then he then rides through a German checkpoint and then you know, he gets called over and you know, you know, he doesn't he doesn't know a word of he does know basic German like Nick, Nick Sheep. <laughs> don't shoot
1: don't shoot
0: yeah. but then he you know he kicks the German officer, and then you know the chase begins proper. And but he still manages to get away. Right, Steve. Mm. When he gets to our little wooden hut, um, it's in the middle of nowhere. This, but still out in the open. You know, it's not going to offer him much cover. Mm. Why do you think he decides to ditch the German uniform?
1: Well, because they were chasing with the German uniform, weren't they?
0: But he's, he's still on that, that, that German. I think it was a BMW bike. It, the actual bike they used wasn't a BMW but originally the, the German one would have been a BMW bike. Mm. They, they, I don't think they could find one. I think they had to use the, the Russian equivalent at the time in 1962.
1: Yeah, yeah. Because he was thinking about it. He took the helmet off and he, he, was, sort of, yeah. he was contemplating what he was doing next. He had the, the, um, the Luger in his hand at the time.
0: Yeah. Now, if he'd run into a different checkpoint, which hadn't been alerted. Surely, if he's in the German officer's uniform, he could have got through. Maybe,
1: possibly. But I think that maybe mm. there wasn't going to be any more checkpoints where you could see what was what was in the distance.
0: Yeah. But I've always thought, why did he decide to ditch the, the mm. uniform? Unless he just thought to himself, well, I'm going to look much cooler in my own threads when I finally <laughs> like you know get wrapped up in our barbed wire fence. But yeah, that
1: rubber barbed wire fence.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then we cut to the men getting off the train at Ausang, mm. and Ashley Pitt. I just love that bit where. And he's not subtle, is he? When he kind of turns away but from I the Gestapo think, officer but, to the train, but,
1: but for him to be a hero, when the the um, the, the German Gestapo in his in his leather yeah. leather coat says Barclay, and he knows yeah. he knows what to do, and yeah. without without fault, without thinking about it, he yeah. shoots him.
0: He does. I'm sure there was mention of little details in the script which weren't played upon in the final film, or if anything, they Mm. they were edited down, but I think Ashley Pitt actually came from a very well-to-do family and was kind of quite upper crust, Mm. and I just love the fact that he does kind of make this sacrifice without even hesitating. No,
1: and he's such a good actor as well. I mean, I know he's...
0: uh, David McCallum. He's
1: done so much stuff that probably people don't think about, whether it's the TV, like The Invisible Man, for example, which I watched as a kid, and He's been in some other war movies as well. He's, he's done a few bits and pieces. He's such a great actor. Although his character it oh, had his fair share, to be fair. They were all very split with, with their you know, their their mo their time on screen.
0: Hey, interesting little um little factoid about David McCallum. When they were shooting this, his wife at the time was none other than Jill Island. Yes, I know, young and
1: you're gonna
0: say, Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Now obviously Charles Bronson <laughs> met Jill Island on this film and then a year or so later, McCallum and Island end up divorcing, and then seven years later, Charles Bronson ends up marrying Jill Island, yeah. who he stayed with until her premature death, mm. was from cancer? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. How bizarre is that though?
0: Yeah, I wonder. I wonder if uh, if McCallum and um, Bronson stayed friends.
1: <laughs> I'm thinking Death Wish now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. You know, Ashley Pitt then, he, he jumps the um, Gestapo officer, doesn't mm. he, and shoots him in the chest with his own gun, yeah. and then obviously gets gunned down on the railway line.
1: Yeah, which is awful. I didn't yeah. like that. I, he deserved no. better than that, to be
0: fair. He did, he did. And then Cavendish is caught, as we've said, and then, but then he's taken in, isn't he, and he's questioned by the Gestapo. Mm. And I love the fact that this questioning of one of the men by the Gestapo is obviously setting up the fact that they are being... Something pretty dastardly and, and evil is being done here.
1: They've already spoken about Bartlett at the beginning of the movie, and yeah. they they'd they say, you they, know, that if you caught again, you will be shot. No question. Yeah, not.
0: yeah. Now, obviously, you know, putting these men to death was against, you know, the Geneva Convention. It's not like they were being, you know, they'd been rightfully captured. They were, again, prisoners of war once more. Mm. So what eventually happened was just despicable. But... The fact then, and I love the fact that they use Cavendish just, you know, it's just to give all of these characters something to do. He's the one that is, is questioned mm. and the Gestapo implying that he's a spy. And he's
1: told how he, how he dyed his uniform and yeah. stuff like that too for what yeah. he was doing and they didn't believe him.
0: Yeah, and then he's then put with the other captured men, including Haynes, yeah. who obviously still in his German officer's uniform, and then Hendley and Blythe steal a plane.
1: Isn't it funny now, in that scene, for whatever reason, Sturgis, you don't... Here inside the control tower it's no, silent
0: you don't do you? they don't say a thing the two you can hear them yeah one of them's got a set of binoculars isn't he
1: you don't there, there is a little bit of conversation going on but you don't hear it yeah but you know you know from their faces they're not bothered because they know that that plane has not been refueled Ah,
0: oh, of course yeah
1: and i was gutted and Getting to know these characters for, for near on three hours with Donald Pleasant's character having having the the problem with his eyesight. You no, know, they were there, they
0: were going, they Well, they well, well the, before mm. before we get it, obviously after they they, they take the plane, mm. we cut. Then Jake Goldsmith is on the blue mm. max with all of that amazing flight music. Bernstein has just got a similar thing he does when when Blythe and Hendley kind of take off in this plane. Mm. It's all kind of you know lovely and serene and, and uplifting, and then we smash back the you know Hiltz and. The Germans have got the Swiss border covered, and he runs into trouble again. And it's at this point that Alma Bernstein's score just absolutely peaks for me. It
1: rocks right the way through because you're you're oh, jumping, 100%. you're jumping from disaster to tense to whatever yeah. was going on. The the music moved in sync with the scenes moving. At the same time and one
0: of my favorite little bits steve we see hills ride off and then we cut back to the germans and then we see a german cyclist he comes towards from right to left and then he turns back on himself and goes and up that road following i think um either a bike in the sidecar or a german he does car. and
1: we know we know who that
0: is don't we that was steve mcqueen yeah, <laughs> so yeah steve mcqueen was, was playing multiple um you know riders in this film
1: apparently the way they, they filmed it was that they would do one scene or get to a certain point of that that scenario then he would just go back change into that uniform with the goggles and do that next bit and then they would i thought they would have edited it differently maybe filmed them separately but from what i've been hearing that this old western trick as they called it
0: yeah and you know the 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 music that accompanies it like i said it's not only one of my favorite sequences in any film It's also one of my favorite pieces of film score Genuinely, yeah it's up there in my top 10 favourite pieces of film score ever maybe my top 5 mm. and then back to Hendley and Blythe they're nearly at the Swiss Alps doesn't he say um, Hendley says "Oh, yeah, another 20 minutes to go Where? and then they're playing loses power yeah. they crash Blythe is just shot in the back as he turns because back he, to warn Hendley yeah and
1: the thing is although his eyes not great I mean and you don't know what you're, you're going to you would have thought you would have stayed on the ground if anything to keep out of the way
0: yeah. but
1: yeah he, he, he you can see the um, sniper pulling out his, his, his weapon
0: yeah I just love that kind of injury, that diagonal injury going down Henley's face and all, all the blood on mm. him, and then and, and he's surrounded by the Germans as as like Blythe dies in his yeah. arms, and, and th- he apologises, sorry for following up, and he says, no, no, thank you for getting me out. Ah, it's it's,
1: it's phew, awful. It's, it's awful. And again, yeah. you've got that emotion. You you've got the two different emotions going on at the same time. Yeah. It just pulls you apart from a from a great scenario to a a dreadful scene that you know you don't want to see.
0: No, and it's you know it's an emotional gut punch, but before we can even catch our breath in, we're back with the hilts, and then he gets to that damn double fence at the German Swiss border. Mm. The, you know, now famous motorcycle jump, <clears throat> it was performed, it, at the time people thought that McQueen performed a jump himself, and I'm pretty sure he wouldn't have... Um,
1: well, he would have done it if it weren't for the insurance regulations, wouldn't let him do it.
0: Yeah, they obviously prohibited him being such a, the main star of the film, you could argue, from, from doing that. So it was performed by his good friend, Bud Eakins, and it was the first ever stunt to cost a thousand dollars. God knows what all of these Buster Keaton things you know cost back in the 30s because holy cow, some of them were insane. But yeah, apparently, this was the one of the costliest stunts I ever put to film. It was actually shot on a sloping field 50 miles southwest of Munich on the Austrian border, so not the Swiss border. Mm. I
1: was listening to Bud Eakins. Um, just going back over what he did hmm. he got his he got his wheels of his bike 12 feet off the ground yeah. and then jumping 65 feet at 60 miles an hour
0: yeah
1: and he said that it was when you're in the air there was dead silence it was just silent yeah although there was like 200 extras and film crew yeah. below him
0: incredible yeah and he just said it just it felt like I was in the air forever and know? then
1: bang <laughs>
0: yeah bike comes down I <clears throat> oh, yeah it's, it's at that point where I just think oh my god it, it, you were nearly there
1: just that,
0: you know, that you, close. Yeah, and then obviously he then gets you know shot at and, and comes off the bike and tangled up in the barb wire and like you say it was actual wire but the barbs were little bits of rubber. Mm. Every day, you know, when when the actors were kind of you know, not shooting anything, they would bring in these reels of this bar of this wire and they'd ask them to tie the little rubber fake barbs on every um six inches. It wasn't it six inches, wasn't <laughs> yeah. it? Yeah, of course, yeah. Brilliant and only three of the real life escapees made it to freedom two of them by train and then onto a swiss boat and the other made it to utrecht in holland also by train Mm. and the film sticks to that didn't it because only three of them get away Uh, danny and and willie on the boat and then sedgwick he meets some french resistance fighters who help him get away i love that little scene with the um the three german officers having what are they drinking
1: yeah i think it was perno Perno, wasn't it
0: Pernod, because he gave water on Pernod. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah,
1: <laughs> he's sitting there, mind his own business, reading his paper, and then the waiter goes over and he says, "Telephone, telephone, telephone,
0: telephone." He's like, "Pour moi." <laughs>
1: <laughs> so he picks it up. Yeah. Then suddenly he sees, a, he sort of, his as tall as he is. He sort of goes down slowly yeah. to hide from the. Uh,
0: yeah. I just love the little bit of um, reluctance in the resistance guy to tell him that they're resistance because he's like mm, who are you then? You know, I just thought you were just some, some customer I was saving from being shot but yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's, it's great mm-hmm. and then oh, talk about another gut puncher <laughs> well, then we have the payoff from the previous scene with Mac testing the man as he and Bartlett board the bus and Mac is wished good luck by a Gestapo officer and he instinctively responds in English He says thank
1: you <laughs> Thank you. Oh. You knew that was coming. Perfect. I think.
0: Yeah, perfect setup and payoff. Yeah.
1: But they really try, as much as they split up to run around to, to, to get away. Yeah. They weren't. I think it must have been a Sunday afternoon because not a lot of those doors were open that they were trying to get through.
0: No, that's right, because they then make a run for it. Mac is captured first, and then Bartlett. I, I love the way he write The scene where Bartlett fools that car full of German officers. Mm. And he convinces him that, um, it doesn't he? Speak to them in Dutch, I, or, or I'm sure one of the, the German guards says something like, "Are you Dutch?" And he responds like, you know, affirmative or yes or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And I love the bit that as they're all getting back in the car. The Bartlett like, almost walks around the front of the car to look at them as if he's still you know, saying, "Why did you stop me?" As if to kind of just make it a little bit more authentic.
1: A lot of balls there to pull that off.
0: Yeah. Oh. And then you think he's got away, and then he's recognised by like a Stapo agent, and that's it then. <laughs> yeah. No point fighting anymore.
1: No.
0: Going back into the reality of what actually happened, it was the man hours and embarrassment caused by this real life escape that caused Hitler to issue the infamous Sagan Order, which resulted in the death by shooting of fifty of the seventy-six escapees. And I think it was I think it was Heinrich Himmler who actually tried to persuade Hitler not to put these men to death because it would have basically made the Germans lose sympathy with their allies with the neutral, com- not the allies, but the, the neutral countries mm. you know, the ones that weren't involved—and he, he kind of was gonna take it on board, but then he went back the other way and just picked out this arbitrary number of fifty men. Well, we'll just shoot fifty of them then, and, and not the—you know—the entire. I think they must have captured seventy-three men because if seventy-six escaped and three, you know, got away, then. They, they've spared 23 men, but they still put 50 to death. Now, yeah. unlike it was depicted in the film, the men weren't all shot as one group. They were, they were shot in small groups over a couple of days. Mm. Local Gestapo officials drove the men out into the countryside in groups of two to four, let them out to urinate, and then shot them in the back. And then the official explanation was shot whilst trying to escape. Mm. So they shot him in the back. And then, you know, Donald Pleasance, who, like like we said, was you know, he spent the last year of the war in... Stalag Luft 1, he remembered the day that the POW camp that he was in, when they posted a notice that 50 men had been shot trying to escape, and it also read, this is really cold, to escape is no longer a sport. And then in October 1944, London announced that escape was no longer a duty of captured POWs. Mm -hmm. Shortly afterwards, American POWs received the same information. And now that scene where where they're killed and Bernstein's music just builds up and then we just you know we've got that soldier then with a the gun mm. on the turret just firing and then it cuts to that wide shot of just the three officers and the cutman looking down yeah on. and
1: you see that you see the truck there on the right and the three but who yeah. you say you but then it's silent isn't it you don't hear anything yeah it's haunting
0: yeah really is yeah and then we're back at Stalagluff nord and i just love how Messima plays it when he's informing ramsay the 50 was shot mm. and, and the difficulty that he has telling him and <laughs> And, and Ramsey's like, well, how many are injured? And yeah. he says, none. And then Ramsey Ramsay then reads out the list of the names of the dead of the assembled men in the camp. Yeah. We see Danny and Willie board a ship, and then Cedric is guided to Spain by the resistance. Espana. Espana, <laughs> yeah.
1: He is
2: not to be saluted. He's no longer in command. Job just didn't work out, huh? You were lucky, Hills. Lucky? Be mm-hmm. because I didn't. How many? Fifty. It looks, after all, as if you will see Berlin before I do.
0: Yeah, so then Henley and the others, and then later Hiltz returned to the camp, and Hiltz sees Von Luger as he's relieved of duty. And then Hiltz is escorted back to the cooler, but not before Goff throws him his baseball and mitt. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, it's kind of... It's almost an upbeat ending, or, or as upbeat as you're going to get after you know the shooting of the 50 men. Now, mm-hmm. Obviously, there were there were considerable changes made to the film that differed to the real-life escape, mainly the fact that no Americans were involved in the eventual escape because they'd be moved out of the camp in the latter part of 1943. Mm. But the decision by John Sturgis and co. was made that in order to appeal to as wide an audience as possible and also to showcase the American stars in the film, that they would, you know, the story they were going to tell in this film would be done slightly differently. What do you think of the choices that Sturgis made to the film, mainly, you know, the addition of the American cast and the kind of fictional involvement in the escape?
1: I think it worked very well. As a viewer at the time, not knowing much of the history, it worked anyway as the, as the, as the film went. Yeah. It was very believable, although even to say in the beginning of the in, the, in the first minute or two, you got that, you got the writing on there telling about the, the, the 50 of the few. Yeah. So you explain, you're well aware of what's to come.
0: Yeah, because it, it finishes, doesn't it, with the text, uh, this picture is dedicated to the 50. Mm. And then we have the, the famous roll call and credits and so again
1: can we just go back one second though because when Hilch is put back in his his second house i mean the cooler and the german yeah. officer that's been escorting him in there through the whole movie yeah just shook his head and you he can believe it
0: yeah it's the same yeah, The same guy same guy yeah well you know i think about the changes that he made i, I think a film like this needs to have a balance between fact and entertainment mm. and if it had finished on a huge downbeat of the execution, and I think it would have soured maybe the rest of the film which had come before it. Yeah. And it, in ending in that fictional way, right, with Hiltz returning and ending up back in the cooler, throwing his baseball against the wall, like you say, it gives like a, a nice end note to the story. That when you couple it with that message on screen in the red text dedicated to the fifty, mm. it kind of pays proper tribute to the men and, and you know their bravery in spite of how tragic yeah. their death was and how just.
1: I think the movie also gave the public more information that they didn't know about this at the time. Yeah, and when they were promoting the movie as well, it also promoted what happened in real life that people got to know about it.
0: Yeah,
1: you know, so I think it, it did its justice from that point of view. I mean, not. I mean, we didn't. I didn't even realise there was a fourth tunnel. Called, at George. Wasn't yeah, it? George. And obviously, during the, the war crimes that and the um, what went on over the years afterwards, that people were um, were paid for it.
0: Yeah, they they went after those responsible for the the, the death of the fifty, didn't they? Mm,
1: yeah, yeah. It sort of goes round in a circle. To, you know, I think I think he did a grand job with it. And um, there's a lot. I've watched a lot of war movies over the last two years. I must say, even some, you know, mm. uh, which I've been doing. And there's still some I've got in my list here to watch. But um, all these movies that we watch, they're all. Based on true events.
0: Yeah, you know, even like when Jacob and I were talking, like um, a few years back, when we did that 1917 episode talking about our favourite war films, there's so many different types of war film. Mm. You know, you've got ones about the aftermath of war films, like The Deer Hunter, Casualties of War, Born on the Fourth of July, which shows the the more the sort of personal the anguish and the psychological side of it. Apocalypse Now, I mean, in many ways, does that. Yeah, but then you've got like the sort of Boy's own adventure, sort of gung ho ones. The, the Great Escape does kind of fall into that, but it it's also doesn't shy away from the fact that like they could have shown like 20, 30 guys escaping and making it that much more mm. of a success, but they didn't. They stuck to, you know, they, they'd made enough changes, I think, that they felt it would be disrespectful to change the fact that three men made it out. But the point was the amount of disruption caused to the German oh, forces. Oh God, yeah.
1: There must be so many people and so much manpower to do what they were doing yeah. to get around this, from the SSS to the SS to the to the lower-ranking soldiers that were being used to um, flush them out.
0: Yeah. It's going to be an endless debate as to what the greatest war film ever is, and I, I, I think. I Think of some of my own favorites. You've got Apocalypse Now, which mm. you know we've covered on an episode of this podcast previously. Full Metal Jacket is a favorite of mine. Oh, god, yeah! You know, Oliver Stone's Platoon, Saving Private Ryan. You know, I've mentioned when Neil and Bill Scully talked about our favorite miniseries, and Band of Brothers mm. was Great show. Think, my number one pick. Which is just you know, you could argue that that is the greatest depiction of, of war put on film because it's so realistic and because it's based on the real accounts of men. Mm. Many of whom were still alive when Stephen E. Ambrose wrote the book upon which Bandit yeah. Brothers is based. You know, John Sturgis himself said, didn't he? He said, No good picture is an easy one, but by that standard, we must have completed the greatest movie ever made.
1: Yeah, a <laughs> bold statement.
0: Ultimately, what are films? You know, it's audiovisual entertainment. Mm. And you know, when, when I think of the perfect movie, my mind always goes back to. You know, one of the best examples I can think of is Jaws. It's just pure entertainment from start to finish. Perfectly crafted. Mm-hmm. And that's what the Great Escape is. Oh yeah. But it's near three hours of that. It's got a cast to die for. It's got one of the greatest film scores ever. It's you know impeccably directed. It's perfectly edited because at no point does the film drag. No. Yeah. You know, the the charisma that some of these actors and, and you know it's not just the American and British cast, some of the German actors, you know, are just Extremely good. It's one is one German actor and
1: he had about a minute's worth of time hmm. and he was at the very end. Yeah. And he was he was in um Kelly's Heroes.
0: Oh right, is it the guy that's kind of on the steps when Hiltz has returned and von der yeah. is being marched away? Yeah. I, I I just haven't got enough expletives to just describe how fucking phenomenal this film is. You know, the last act and you know the Hiltz on the motorcycle thing. I, I just it just gets me every time. I just, I think I've watched that entire sequence maybe about three or four times, five times maybe in prep for this episode. Mm. Just, you know, that entire, and it's interspersed with all that other stuff. It You know, it takes about, you know, 25 minutes to watch it all from the point where he first sets up that trip by to the point where he's caught. But I just think it's the most perfect sequence one of the most perfect sequences ever captured on film. I mean, if
1: you if you if you're trying to put war movies in the top five on their own, it's not easy. Although this one would be on the top and there's many you could put underneath that. Forgetting, say, stuff over the last twenty years. I'm talking stuff in the same era as, as the Greatest Game. Yeah. And there's some there six three three squadron comes to mind. Um, mm-hmm. which is another mission based on true story. Another one that's my absolute favorite is Danbusters.
0: Yeah. And you know, you could say that you know this is the, that kind of subgenre of the war film. It, it doesn't actually show combat, war, combat, does it? It's it's the kind of POW film. It's the, yeah. The, you could argue that they are war films that kind of show the harsh, sickening reality mm. of war better. Ah, oh, one from last year, "All Quiet on the Western Front," is told from the other perspective in World War One. It's absolutely phenomenal. And again, you know, talking about films told from the perspective of the enemy, Das Boot, Wolfgang Petersen's film, is just phenomenal. Yeah, and that's a load of men on a submarine, and it just, you know, but again, it's a war film.
1: Some of these older movies, even some of the like, well, slightly like biopic ones, like Reach for the Sky. Yeah. Uh, with um, you know, and movies like that, or even Matter of Life and Death, that's still a war movie.
0: Oh, Paul and Presper Yeah, hundred yeah, percent. It's a love story. Yeah, and again. You know, if we're talking about Prisoner of war films, um, I think Bridge on a River Choir is going to be up there with. That's definitely going to be giving The Great Escape, you know, a run for his money. And I know there's n- <laughs> many people that would argue that that's a better film.
1: Yeah, and to say Lawrence of Arabia was,
0: I you know, I, I've had this discussion before. Um, I think it was James Hancock that, that said he, he was like, well, I, you know, I don't know if I. I think it was on a Cleopatra episode we were talking about historical epics. Now, is Lawrence of Arabia a historical epic or is it a war film? Mm. Because it's actually set during World War One, mm. but because of the setting, you kind of think of it more in terms of an, a you know a, a sword and sandals historical epic, even though it's not. It's set more or less in modern times, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. But again, Lawrence Arabia, as we've said before, you know, as, as we said on the episode last year, one of the all-time greats. You know, my my choice of The Great Escape as my favorite war mm. film is just purely subjective. But also, objectively, it is a phenomenal film.
1: It takes so many boxes. That's why. That's yeah. why it's on top.
0: You know, you, you've done the you know the series with James Hancock of, of men on a mission films. You've got Guns of the Navarone. You've got you know Force Ten. Force Ten from Navarone. Kelly's Kelly's uh, Heroes, uh, isn't there? Kelly's Heroes, A Bridge Too Far, Where Eagles Dare. Just you know, so many great films within that sort of category. Mm. I think this is the granddaddy of them all.
1: Oh, it is, and. Enough. I don't think enough people know it now. Teenagers onwards maybe will not know this movie at all.
0: And no, but it's one of those ones where I know that when my my two my two sons who are twelve and nine they they know of this film, and when I know that they are of an age where they can appreciate it. Mm. You know, certainly, my twelve year old can, but you know they can appreciate it for what it is. I'm sure that they, they will find it every bit as enjoyable as I did when I first saw it when I was, you know, seven or eight or, her, or however old I and it's was. it's a
1: history lesson at the same
0: time. 100% it really is. I, I don't think at any point we've, I know we've asked a few questions about their little illogical bits like how, you know, Cavendish, you know, the guy in the in the truck alert did the, the German checkpoint. But there's no criticisms of any major kind that I'm going to be throwing towards this film. Every film will
1: have its little uh, dilemmas like that and, you know, for what it is, it's minimal at the end of the day.
0: Yeah. Uh, so, um, is there anything that we've uh, we've left out?
1: Well, we've mentioned the score slightly, haven't we? That was, it's probably one of the most famous um, scores from, from war movies that probably help, it helped finance um, Elmer Bernstein to the day
0: he died. And he'd done incredible work for Sturgis, hadn't he, on The Magnificent Seven three years before?
1: Yeah. As much as I say, the great Legend of Seven is such a wonderful score, and even a great movie as well. That's that's a western, so we'll keep them separate. Yeah. But they both rock in their own dependent ways, and the scores as well, just fantastic. I think doesn't matter who you are, if someone whistled the Great Escape, you know what it is.
0: Look, and this is an American produced and financed, and and you know, it's an American film. But it's something inherently British. It's like, it's like as if Britain took ownership of the mm. Great Escape because it, it just seeped didn't it, into popular culture. You know, like I say, there was that there was that advert that um, the beer advert in eighty nine where they just you know reused footage from the film.
1: There's a film that I remembered. My kids used to love watching, and I did explain to them about it because it took so many references. Chicken Run. Yeah. And my kids, you know, when the chickens they're bouncing the ball, you know, same as Steve with Stephen yeah. And even the music was very similar at some point. And also the escapes yeah, cool. in, in the in the chicken coops and everything else. It was a great escape for chickens, basically. Yeah. But yeah, there's others that say over the years there's been other things that have parodied and or whatever.
0: But it's like the music as well, that you know, it, it seeped into you know football culture over in Britain as well. And Or even politically as know. well,
1: wasn't it? Was it UKIP or something? sort of took the Great Escape as their theme for the the political stuff they were doing at the time.
0: Oh, right, yeah. So it was, and obviously it was used for
1: the World Cup as well let's not forget yeah, that one
0: most famously i think in recent years yeah, <laughs> it is yeah
1: still go and it's still strong now it's still one of those put together scores that are just is a perfect score
0: oh yeah and that main theme it's just you hear it once and then it's in your head for the rest of the day mm. in a good way
1: oh yeah and it's funny how that they even though they had different different themes to characters as well they still had part of that tune of that music embedded into that into that motif that they were using it for whether it was different in different, different sort of volumes to how it particularly slow fast or whatever they did with that, that music they kept yeah. it very similar but it was st- but you, you, you never got bored of hearing it
0: no no you didn't so there you have it uh, another one of the um, you know the, the Film 89 core team's uh, wish list of films and yeah this is one of mine you know struck off the list it, it it's just absolute filmic heaven to me and you know I, I just can't express enough how much I love this film and yeah maybe I can't be objective about it but yeah it's you know I, I genuinely do think it's one of the greatest films ever made it is
1: and a lot of pe- there's a lot of people out there that, 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 that agree with you and you know some people might might not get it it depends war movies and that sort of thing is a, it's a difficult genre to grab hold of depending on
0: yeah. on
1: where you where you come from with, with with watching
0: movies and I think one of the you know criterion like you know one of one of the most sort of high boutique labels, mm. They released The Great Escape a few years back on Blu-ray in the states. Unfortunately, due to licensing, it's not you know the Criterion version of The Great Escape is not available in the UK, but it's available in the United States and Canada. And the fact that Criterion, out of all the war films from this era, from the you know the the, the 50s and 60s when you know World War II films were you know a genre amongst themselves, mm. the fact that Criterion picked The Great Escape to release as part of their collection of you know some of the greatest, most important films ever made. I think that says a lot as well. Mm. And and kind of just reinforces the fact that, as we're saying, we genuinely do think this is one of the all time greats.
1: When I'm long gone, this film will still be there. It'll yeah. still be um be appreciated by by audiences. Absolutely. You know, and I, I would love to see a cinema release of this.
0: God yeah. I've still not seen Lawrence of Arabia on the big screen and I would absolutely love to see the Great Escape on the big screen. Mm. Yeah. And you never know, you know, if they do decide to re-release it, hopefully, you know, at some point, you know, this year would be ideal for the 60th anniversary. Maybe, just maybe this time, Hulse will make that jump.
1: <laughs> I think you should do a, a CG version where he makes it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, in fact, you know, one little thing we forgot to mention is Cast Minds, back to 2019, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yes. Quentin Tarantino. Mm. Recreating the scene from The Great Escape, but inserting Leonardo DiCaprio's character. Oh, I forgot about that. It was, and it was done so well. I need to
1: rewatch that. You can Just rewatch that scene.
0: It's easily one of my favourite films from. In fact, I think we said in the hundredth episode one of the questions was, "What's your favourite film from that's been released during the lifetime of the podcast?" Mm. And I think there's a strong argument that it could be Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Mm. And yeah, the way that you know Rick Dalton is put in as a as a replacement for Steve McQueen, because in Dalton's mind he wishes that he'd got the you know role. the role, the role over McQueen. You know, I was sat there and I, biggest I grin think,
1: ever on your face.
0: I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure I, I saw it with uh, Neil or Steve. I, I I know obviously you know we recorded the episode Neil and I did with, with Tony Stella, but I'm sure ah either way. But I turned to one of them, whichever one it was, and I was like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. <laughs> You know, I, I was absolutely loving it. Just
1: it's one of those draw drop you know, moments you get in cinema sometimes. You
0: didn't expect oh, it. 100 percent. Yeah. Yeah, it just made me love that film all the more. Mm. But and the other thing we learned is that you were actually named after the great man himself. Yeah. I know. How cool is that. Very
1: privileged, I think, for that one. Yeah.
0: Anyway, Steve, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you about the Great Escape tonight. I I know you've spoken about the film before on Wrong Reel and you know, I just knew you had a still had a lot more oh, to say God, about yeah. it, it's, you know, given
1: it was, if that was 20, probably, that was only like a third, that was one slice of a podcast where we've had nearly an hour and a an hour half, and half uh,
0: yeah. on it, yeah. And probably could have gone on much longer. Mm.
1: Yeah, and there's a, there's other films like this to do as well, and I know you'll get there eventually, <clears throat> but thank I do appreciate um, for coming on doing this, really
0: do. Well, like I said to you a while back, it was, you, you and I were always going to do The Great Escape at some point. Mm. But Steve, where can people find you on social media if they want to hit you up and talk about uh, films, film scores, or, or anything else? The
1: best place would be Twitter at Steve007. I've got a YouTube channel now called the Vinyl Cues, where I've got about seventy videos now with music that's been going bubbling over slowly. And um, Instagram is very is um, the Vinyl Cues as well. So but I'm always on Twitter, even though it's a bit of a weird scenario now these days. That's been all been rebranded
0: and. I'm still calling it Twitter. Yeah.
1: I do, too, yeah. you know. Uh, but, yeah, I'm always there. Always, always, always I always like to have a good rant about
0: something, or so mm-hmm. whatever. Yeah, and you can find me on Facebook and the uh, social media site, formerly known as Twitter, at Sky Movies. And you can find the rest of the gang at Film89UK, also on Twitter and Facebook. Please, if you want to hit us up with uh, listener questions or uh, requests for future episodes, email us admin at film89.co.uk or you can uh, DM us through Facebook or Twitter. And also, if you could please leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts, um, we you know, we are getting them in. We are getting lots of lovely five star reviews, and it does do a lot for us. The most recent from a good friend of ours, Tony Sheehan Thank you very much for the uh, lovely five star review you left us the other day, Tony. And I know you're going to be listening to this episode, but like all of our listeners, yeah, your, your continued support is appreciated more than you could know. But I think uh, that's it for now. And all that's left to say is stay safe, be excellent to one another, but more importantly. Good luck.